0: Since I'm going to be talking about biblical interpretation, I thought I'd start out with a little joke, biblical interpretive joke. (laughs) At least I hope it's a joke, Dale. At the Hebrew Hebrew street, at the Henry Street Hebrew School, this rabbi (laughs) finished his lesson for the day and uh, he allowed some time for questions and when he did that, little Melvin immediately shot up his hand. Yes, Melvin? said the rabbi. Do you have a question? Yes, Melvin said. There's something I need to know. Well, what is it, my child, the rabbi said. Well, according to the scriptures, the children of Israel crossed the Red Sea, right? Of course, the rabbi said. And according to the scriptures, the children of Israel entered the promised land and beat up the Philistines, right? Uh, Right, said the rabbi. And the children of Israel built the temple, right? course, and the children of Israel fought the Assyrians and the Babylonians, the Greeks and the Romans. They were always doing something important, right? All that is correct, said the rabbi, so what's your question? Well, little Melvin wanted to know, during all that time, what were the grown-ups doing? (laughs) That was given me by a colleague, so if you don't like it, it's just (laughs) fine. All right, Uh, the title of my... uh, essay today is my interpretation, why others tear down what I have so neatly built. Because people have more disagreements about how to interpret the Bible than my dog Izzy has habits that annoy me, and because such disagreements often cause divisions between people. In this essay, I address the problem of interpretive disagreement. Why do people so often disagree about the meaning of biblical texts? How do people settle their differences? When people are arguing about how a text should be interpreted, what are they actually arguing about? What are they both after? Anyone who has had to defend their interpretation against someone who disagrees with them quickly realizes how risky interpreting the Bible can be. You soon find out that you aren't in control of the convincing interpretation like you thought you were. Opponents often reveal weaknesses in your logic that you didn't see, and they aren't convinced by your best arguments. You may find that you are uncomfortably vulnerable. The messy, contentious side of biblical interpretation may at first have caught some of us by surprise. I know when I graduated from the seminary, it caught me. Because when we first learn how to interpret the Bible in the controlled environment of the classroom, it is easy to get the impression that arriving at the right interpretation is a fairly systematic and mechanical process. In that setting, we often act as if learning how to exegete a biblical text consists of first learning the proper methodology that we can then apply to the text, sometimes in step-like fashion, in order to arrive at the correct interpretation Behind the classroom focus on methodology is the hope that proper methodology will arm us with the tools we need to dig out or discover the meaning that is waiting for us in the text. In a way, this view is comforting because it suggests that there are external and independent controls that all of us can count on to give us the right meaning. The hope is that once we learn the right method, it will lead to positive results. This view assumes that wrong interpretations, either on our part or someone else's, are based on mistakes, just like little Melvin's mistake. Mistakes that can be corrected by pointing to the correct facts, grammatical facts, lexical facts, contextual facts, historical facts, and so on. Once we input the right facts and work through the method we have learned, we can ensure the correctness and persuasiveness of our interpretations. Now, as long as different interpreters agree about many basic assumptions, as long as they have a lot of things in common, this appeal to method as a way to get to the right interpretation seems to work. Mistakes in understanding the syntax of a passage or the meaning of a Hebrew word are easily correctable. And where there is already large-scale agreement, most problems can be solved by simple explanations designed to correct misunderstandings. However, what do we do in the case of interpretive differences that aren't due to mistakes? Nowadays, we regularly face interpretive differences that go far deeper than mistakes, and we cannot at all presuppose that interpreters of the Bible share much in common at all. Here is an example of what I mean. In their book, The Jesus Legend, authors Paul Eddy and Gregory Boyd state up front their belief that the Gospels are not only historically grounded, but also that their central message is theologically true. After examining every perspective in the Gospel genre debate, evaluating every bit of evidence, and sifting through an immense amount of data, they reached the conclusion that all the evidence supports rather than undermines the historical intentionality of the Gospel authors. Furthermore, even though they find the exact nature of the genre of the Gospels difficult to classify, they are certain that the one proposal that finds no support is the view that the Gospels are intentionally crafted ancient fiction of any kind. In summarizing their conclusions on the Gospel genre, they say, there is no evidence that the Gospels were written as literary fiction. And after looking at the mountain of evidence and close argumentation, who could possibly disagree? Well, Robert Price could and does. Among a number of other endorsements at the front of the Jesus legend, Robert Price recommends the book, even though he says, I would dispute almost every one of their assertions. And in his recently published book, Jesus is Dead, Price does just that. Price is as certain that the Gospels are fiction as Eddie and Boyd are that they are not. He says things like, What I want to suggest next is that fundamentalists are perhaps willfully missing certain, I think, blatant signals in the texts themselves that their authors did not even want us to take them literally. And he says... We are not dealing with historical reporting. We are not even supposed to be dealing with historical narrative. And again, I see a number of features in the Gospel texts implying that their writers were not trying to write factual histories. In other words, where Eddie and Boyd find no evidence that the Gospels were intended as fiction, Price sees evidence of fiction everywhere he looks. In his interpretation of the New Testament, he works to prove his case. And readers don't have to read too far before they notice that his interpretation of text after text is as different from Eddie and Boyd's as, well, fact from fiction. When compared to the traditional interpretation represented by Eddie and Boyd, in Price's readings, words have different meanings, names of people have different reference, texts match up in different ways, previously unseen tensions and difficulties appear, and different conclusions are drawn. The differences are not due to a few correctable mistakes. The interpretations are completely from beginning to end irreconcilable. This is just one example of a situation that is repeated on text after text throughout the Bible. Interpretive differences go much deeper than mistakes. The differences cannot be solved by appealing to an agreed upon method that will bring the different interpretations into line because the disagreement is not due to missteps in procedure. And one can't appeal to an objective set of facts, grammatical, historical, literary, to solve the dispute because the facts and what counts as the decisive facts are themselves matters of dispute. In other words, both Price and Eddie Boyd present plenty of facts to support their interpretation and both of them dismiss the facts of the other party. So what is behind their different interpretations of the Gospels? Well as I indicated both authors claim that they have managed to figure out the author's intentions. Each of them claims to have discerned how the authors of the Gospels intended their writings to be understood and each of them presents arguments and evidence to support their case. The realization that the interpretive disagreement between Eddie Boyd and Price is disagreement about the author's intentions, suggests that our disagreements about a text's meaning at any level are at the same time disagreements about authorial intention. Put more positively, whenever any of us are trying to figure out a text's meaning, we are at all times trying to figure out the author's intentions. In other words, there is no distinction to be made between meaning and authorial intention. When we are trying to figure out the meaning of a text, we are actually trying to figure out what is in the author's mind of which the text is evidence. The author's intentions include the intention to communicate and communicate cognitive information, speech acts, affective and moral knowledge, emotions, along with the assumption that an author's various intentions may vary in strength. The assumption that it is the author's intentions that we seek entails the assumption that a text has been produced by a particular author on a particular occasion and for particular purposes. It is actually the assumption of intention that makes a text a text and distinguishes it from accidental and therefore meaningless marks on a piece of paper. This means that as soon as we start reading we are starting with the belief that we are reading a text that was written for some purpose that it is intentional, and assuming intention, we proceed. Even though we may not know anything about the author, and even without realizing it, as soon as we attempt to read, we are committed to the belief that there is an author who is a speaker of language and who intends to communicate something. If we don't assume that the written marks are the product of someone for some reason, we won't even see them as language. As Stephen Knapp and Walter Ben Michaels say, To deprive written marks of an author is to convert them into accidental likenesses of language. As soon as they become intentionless, they become meaningless as well. If we take intention away from a text, we take away the reason to interpret or even seeing the need to interpret. For example, since 2008, scholars have been working to decipher the inscription found on a broken piece of pottery at Kirbet Kaifa, an ancient city in southern Israel. Their interpretive efforts are driven by the assumption that this is a specimen of an ancient text written by a particular author for a particular purpose. But here, too, there is a lively debate about what the text might mean, and it focuses on figuring out the author's intention. But theoretically speaking, if some compelling evidence were brought forward which convinced everyone that the marks on the pottery were either accidentally made or merely likenesses of language, the need to interpret the inscription, which would no longer actually be an inscription, would stop. To suggest that attempts to interpret should continue would be to say that the marks on a page are language, even though nobody ever meant anything by them. Therefore, in the move from being unsure of a text's meaning to pinning the meaning down, it is not intention that is added to a sentence which already in the abstract has some intentionless meaning, but information about the intention. In the example of the Kirbet Kaifa inscription, the assumption of intention is present from the start. Indeed, we can't get started without it. And proceeding on that assumption, scholars are using all the relevant linguistic, historical and archeological evidence at their disposal in an attempt to pin down the meaning. And in the case of the interpretive disagreement between Eddie Boyd and Price, they both assume that the gospels are texts written by particular authors for particular purposes, vastly different ones obviously. It is in the light of their different assumptions about the author's intentions that the interpretations of the words take the shapes that they do. Both muster all the historical, linguistic, and literary evidence that they can to make their case since texts don't write themselves. In order to figure out a text's meaning, an interpreter always has to go behind the words in an attempt to construct the situation that gave rise to the text and in the light of which the words take on particular meanings. From the start, we make interpretive assumptions about the author, his goals, purposes and situation that enable us to make sense of the text. And the shape of those assumptions is responsible for the shape of the interpretation. The ever-present need for us to interpret the author's intentions, because again, texts don't interpret themselves, means that when there is an interpretive disagreement, we cannot objectively, that is, free of all presuppositions, settle the dispute by appealing to what the words mean just in themselves because in the abstract, apart from the intentions of an author who gives them meaning, texts don't mean. Therefore, the assumption that distinctions can be made between language and speech acts, for example, or between sentence meaning and speaker meaning, or between what a text meant and what a text means, and that these distinctions can help us lessen our interpretive risk, don't hold up. Interpreters do not move from language to speech acts, nor from sentence meaning to speaker meaning, nor from what a text meant to what it means. In each set of distinctions, the left side of the pair is commonly assumed to refer to that which can be interpreted with more certainty and in a more or less independently verifiable way, and the right side to refer to that which is more context dependent, unclear, and riskier to interpret. In other words, it is often assumed that interpreters have freer access to the items on the left and that these lend stability and at least a degree of objectivity to an interpretation. But actually, there is no choice to be made between them because they both imagine a form of language apart from intention and again, there is no such thing. In regard to language in general, language and speech acts are as inseparable as meaning and intention. The essence of a speech act is its intentional character. Intention is built in. And as as I have tried to show, language has intention built into it as well. Language is irreducibly intentional. It consists of intentional speech acts. When we assume that something is language, we assume it is a speech act. And so there is no choice to be made between language and speech acts. The only choice is to decide what speech act is intended. And that's not always easy to do. As there is no choice to be made between language and speech acts, so there is no choice to be made between sentence meaning and speaker meaning. Sentence meaning, the idea that a string of words possesses meaning as an inherent property or that the meaning of a sentence can be derived from its constituent parts alone without assuming a context and is simply a matter of decoding the words is impossible. Interpretation always takes place within some context of assumptions concerns, priorities, expectations, so that what an interpreter sees as the meaning emerges. An interpreter is never in the position of being able to focus on meaning independently of background or supplemental considerations. The meaning of a text does not announce itself. It must be decided upon, that is interpreted. This is also true of contexts. They are not given. The earlier observation that the gospel texts look very different in the mouths of different speakers, in different situations, holds at bay the idea that statements mean in the abstract and leads to the conclusion that every speech situation is unique. Any meaning a sentence might seem to have is the product of interpretive work. Again, the interpretive disagreement between Eddie Boyd and Price and any interpretive disagreement leads to the same conclusion. As another example, if agreement is ever reached as to what 1 Timothy 2 verse 15 means, nevertheless she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control, that agreement will not have been obtained by decoding what the words mean in themselves. Meanings are not embedded in words. They emerge in the light of background assumptions that interpreters put in place that make them intelligible. Interpreters with different assumptions come to different conclusions. In those cases in which the meaning of a text seems immediately available, without recourse to anything but the words themselves, cases where any other meaning seems impossible, it is because the background context is so established and widely assumed and agreement among people is so extensive that we are not even aware of it. For example, Jesus' words to Thomas, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me is, as one commentary notes, commonly recognized as ranking with John 3.16 as an outstanding expression of the gospel. Taken as an expression of the gospel, like the so-called gospel in a nutshell, Christians hear these words of Jesus as comfort that their faith is not in vain and as an invitation to believe in Jesus and you will get to heaven. But Soren Kierkegaard connects Jesus' words not with John 3.16, but with Matthew 7, verse 14. But small is the gate, and narrow is the way that leads to life, and only a few find it. At the beginning of his sermon, Kierkegaard writes, but the fact that Christ's life every single day, every hour, every moment, expresses the way is narrow is indeed a totally different continual and penetrating proclamation that the way is narrow than if his life had not expressed it. Furthermore, you see here that the proclaiming of Christianity for a period of a half hour by a man whose life every day, every hour of the day, every moment expresses the opposite is at the greatest possible distance from the true proclamation of Christianity. And after Kierkegaard has described that narrow way, which is Christ growing narrower into death, and then declares that the demonstration of Christianity really lies in imitation and then urges me to say to myself, I have coddled myself with respect to imitation, that my life is not exerted enough in this direction, that I have too easy a life, spare myself the dangers bound up with witnessing for truth and against untruth. I begin to see that Jesus' words are not meant to comfort us, that our faith makes us okay with God but they are an awesome challenge to take up our cross and follow Jesus that leaves no corner of our lives untouched. The point again, when meanings seem obviously derived from, quotes, the words themselves, that is because the background assumptions for understanding them are deeply and almost unconsciously in place. But in the light of different assumptions, even the obvious common meaning can be dislodged. Another distinction, this is one commonly made in biblical studies, is the distinction between what a text meant and what a text means. The distinction is often invoked in order to describe the differences between the interests of the biblical critic and the theologian. The biblical critic, in other words, is purportedly interested in what the text meant, sometimes characterized as the meaning texts have in themselves or originally, and therefore the meaning that can be discovered by the right method. While the pastor or theologian is interested in what the text means in the present, freed from the original circumstances of its production. There are at least three problems with the distinction. First, the what the text means side of the distinction is sometimes used as a description of how a text is applied by subsequent readers. As a result, meaning and application, concepts that are certainly related but should be kept conceptually distinct, become confused. Second, the contrast implies that a text has no meaning that persists across time. What you actually have is a series of possible meanings. And third, the distinction implies two different kinds of meaning, intentional and intentionless and two kinds of interpreters with different competencies to discover the two distinct types of meaning. Now it is true that the history of biblical interpretation, a history amply demonstrating that the description of a text's meaning has undergone repeated revision at the hands of subsequent generations of readers, seems to support the distinction. History seems to show that text's change meaning as time and circumstance change, and take on meanings quite beyond the original intentions of the author. And this leads to the conclusion that what a text originally meant should be separated from what it means. But to maintain the distinction is to again introduce the possibility of intentionless meaning. And to introduce that possibility is to suggest, given the absence of authorial intention as the object of interpretation, that readers, individual or in community, are free to te- make the text mean whatever they intend. And it is to say that this is what various interpreters throughout history have been doing. Now, of course, the history of interpretation does show that subsequent generations of interpreters have, impo- have proposed very different meanings for the biblical text. And different meanings of texts are proposed daily. But the reason for this is not because meaning can be set free from the intentions of the author or because historical distance has separated meaning from intention and shifted intention from the author's intentions to the reader's. But it is because of the difficulty of figuring out what the author means and the disagreement that results from that pursuit. Readers argue about what a text means because each side believes that they have grasped the true meaning of the text the meaning that the author intended, and previous interpretations have not. The history of interpretation is partly a history in which one interpretation is contested by another with arguments designed to show why the one is right and the other one is wrong. If there is such a thing as intentionalist meaning, then we waste our time arguing that any other interpretation is wrong. And there is no point in trying to persuade others that our interpretation is right because there would be nothing to get right. We could simply praise the interpretive ingenuity of other interpreters. No one need be concerned about what they insist are egregious misreadings of the text. Better yet, to the relief of our students, all our exegetical classes could become creative writing classes. (laughs) The process of interpretation the necessity for argument and demonstration. (laughs) The desire to persuade, the desire to persuade only makes sense if there is something that everyone is after. So far I've been arguing that because meaning is identical with authorial intention, that is because interpreters trying to figure out a text's meaning are always trying to figure out the purposes, intentions and situations of the author behind the text, there is no independently verifiable, interpretation-free, neutral ground on which interpreters can stand in order to settle interpretive differences. Sentence meaning, or what the words mean in themselves apart from a speaker, is not a candidate because texts do not author themselves. And without assuming that the words were written by an author who intends to communicate something, we wouldn't even see it as a text or try to interpret it. It would be accidental marks. As soon as we decide something is a text or that it is language, Greek, Hebrew or whatever, we already have some information about the speaker, that he or she is a writer of language and intends to communicate. What we are trying to figure out in pinning down the interpretation is what the author has in mind for which the text is evidence. The dictionary is not a candidate because a dictionary only gives us a record of what people ordinarily mean when using a word. It is a record of possible meanings, intentions, and there is no way of specifying which one is the intended one. The reader's intentions are not a candidate because then the interpretation game would have no point. It's not up there yet, okay. It would be like telling someone that to play basketball, there it is, you can do whatever you want with the ball. There are no rules and there is no object that you are after. Just do whatever you want and have fun and no one will argue. Every time you play, you would be playing a new game. Doing this amounts to rewriting a text, not interpreting it. A lot of people want to do that, but that's not interpretation again. The upshot of all this again is that there is nothing that demands or controls an interpretation that is not itself a product of interpretation. Neither the interpretation of Eddie Boyd nor Price is stabilized by a pre interpretive or interpretation-free anchor. But this does not mean that our respective authors made the decision to interpret the Gospels as they do freely. That is, as if they could just as easily have decided to go in a different direction. Though there is no neutral or pre-interpretive constraint, as I have said, Their interpretations inevitably take shape from the beliefs and assumptions that they hold or rather that have a firm hold on them. Their beliefs hem them in on every side and they cannot escape from them. Neither of them put aside their beliefs or stepped away from them in order to interpret the text more, quotes, fairly. It was their beliefs that enabled their reasoning about the text to take the paths that they did and constrain them from other directions. All of us, Price, Eddy, and Boyd included, interpret in accord with who we are. And who we are is a consequence of the beliefs that hold us and is a consequence of which we interpret the world as we do. Our minds are an assemblage or a structure of related categories, logics, assumptions that we think with and that enable us to reason and argue about a text and make the sense of it that we do. We are all extensions of numerous communities with their own networks of beliefs, some of which overlap. And we've been taught to interpret the biblical text within this network and with logic internal to the structure of beliefs, a logic which delivers interpretations that seem obvious and obviously right to us. It is these constellations of beliefs that form the important context within which we interpret a text. And so both Price's and Eddie Boyd's interpretations of the gospel texts emerge from the different structures of beliefs which hold them in their grip. In a sense, their beliefs put them in conceptually different worlds where they see the text differently, where words can have different meanings, where different standards of evidence are in place, where what counts as facts can vary, where different ways for determining genre are in place, where different criteria apply for deciding correct and incorrect interpretations, where there are different ways of reasoning different ways of dealing with problems, and so on. Robert Price categorizes the Gospels as fiction because his beliefs constrain him from seeing anything else, and what he sees, he knows. For him, the choice is obvious, and he is certain that he is right. And the same goes for Eddie Boyd. Both give coherent reasons and justification for their interpretations, but they are reasons from within their perspective and not outside or free of it. This is why when the facts from one side of the divide are presented to the other side, facts which seem obvious and incontrovertible. The arguments are quickly discounted, or they are not seen as decisive, or the evidence is recharacterized, that is, reinterpreted, to arrive at other conclusions. Some important implications come from our look at the Price versus Eddie Boyd debate. Once again, some other distinctions commonly called upon by professional biblical interpreters are compromised namely the faith versus fact distinction and its relatives, faith versus knowledge and faith versus reason. Just this summer, in what has become a controversial editorial, biblical scholar Ronald Hendel used the faith versus fact assumption to characterize the difference between biblical interpretation by the overtly religious types he opposes and the critical, that is, the assumed to be more objective, more scientific and therefore more prestigious biblical scholarship he supports. In an editorial entitled, Farewell to SBL, Faith and Reason in Biblical Studies, he compared faith and reason to oil and water, things that do not mix and should not be confused. He wrote, that is to say, facts are facts and faith has no business dealing in the world of facts. But Hendel cannot be right. The easy opposition between faith and fact rests on the assumption that we have minds full of beliefs, but they are beliefs that are always subject to a world of independent fact checking that can either confirm or reject beliefs correctness. It assumes that all we have to do is stand at a distance from our beliefs, check the facts against them, and adjust our beliefs according to those facts. It's like imagining facts to be these supremely benign arbitrators handing out unvarnished truth to all who ask. But as we have seen, the relationship between faith and facts is actually the other way around. Facts are not just hanging around waiting to be uncovered by unbiased observation or there would be no debate about them. Facts are seen as facts. They take the shape they do in the light of the beliefs and assumptions of interpreters who see them from the perspective that has been provided by their beliefs. That's why Robert Price so easily, in his view at least, dismisses all the facts of Eddie Boyd and asserts his own facts, which, by the way, Eddie Boyd also rejects as legitimate. Facts aren't separate from belief. They depend on belief for their livelihood. As there is no opposition between faith and fact, so there is no separation between belief and knowledge. What we believe, we believe is true, and what we don't believe, we believe is not true. Having beliefs is being committed to the truth of what is believed and the falsehood of what isn't. We cannot escape our beliefs and become disinterested knowledge seekers so that we can then base our beliefs on a foundation of knowledge more certain because more true than our beliefs themselves. There is no neutral knowledge that makes our beliefs more secure. Believing is seeing, and seeing is knowing. By no coincidence, the author of Hebrews writes, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. I think he's exactly right. In the same way, faith is not independent from reason. Again, it is the other way around. Reason needs faith to get started. Without some premises and presuppositions already in place, there is no direction for the reasoning process to take. You can't have one without the the other. That is to say, it is the structure of beliefs, beliefs of which the mind consists, that directs the way we reason about a text's meaning. Each of our authors, Price, Eddy, and Boyd, reason about the text in ways dictated by their beliefs and not independently of them. Hendel's imagined battle royal between faith and reason does not, in fact, exist. The battle, and it does exist, is between different systems of deeply held beliefs which yield competing arguments of what counts as evidence, competing ways of reasoning and competing visions of the truth. Throughout this essay I have been arguing against the possibility this side of heaven of escaping our limited perspective, the limits of our language and our descriptions to take a God's eye view of things. This means that we can't objectively decide between Price and Eddie Boyd if by objectively is meant with a neutral eye or with our beliefs and assumptions bracketed out of the decision-making process. There is no moment when we are free of our beliefs. There is no part of our mind that can proceed without assumptions or categories that make thinking possible. This does not mean that we cannot decide who is right and who is wrong in this case, Eddie Boyd or Price, and give reasons for it. We certainly do decide who is right and who is wrong. We do make distinctions between correct and incorrect, good and bad interpretations. We see clear differences, but it is because our beliefs deliver the distinctions to us. A mind free of beliefs and conviction is an impossibility. These are the necessary conditions for being able to think and categorize and make the interpretive decisions that we do. As Christians, we read the Bible as we do, not because we have independently decided to stand on faith and ignore fact, or because we have decided to ignore rationality and actual knowledge and rely instead on irrational subjective belief, but because the structure of beliefs, convictions, and assumptions that inhabit us Deliver for us a world of facts that we see, because we see and see clearly, and what we see we know to be the truth. What core beliefs and convictions about the truth have us and the people we serve in their grip? What beliefs guide and also constrain our interpretation of Scripture and enable us to determine the correctness or incorrectness of our interpretations and also our doctrinal formulations? Most of us would probably answer, well... Ultimately, it is our belief in Jesus. We call him the key to understanding the scriptures. But the obvious problem, once again, is that the identity of Jesus and the significance of his mission are not self-interpreting. Who do people say that Jesus is? Different answers are possible. Already in the second century, the church father Tertullian recognized this. He wrote, I say that my gospel is the true one. Marcion says that his is. I assert that Marcion's gospel is adulterated, Marcion says that mine is. Different answers to the question who do you say Jesus is are also behind the differences between Eddie Boyd and Price. How do we then adjudicate between different accounts? Tertullian made his case for the correctness of his gospel preaching by appealing to a core of beliefs or a framework that came to be known as the rule of faith which the community of Christ's disciples had confessed From the very beginning of the Christian era. The term rule of faith was used to describe various types and sizes of formulae, sometimes semi creedal, a kind of theological framework outlining key articles and features of the true gospel that was to be believed and taught. In its varying forms, the rule provides Scripture's subject matter, its hypothesis. Reflected to a certain extent in the later creeds, it summarized the unified actions of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, most especially the saving acts of the Son, who brings all things to full consummation in and through his life, death, and resurrection. Through the rule of faith, the complexity of Scripture was rendered coherent. As one author says, the various notes sounded by Scripture are brought together into a rich and satisfying harmony. It is important to note that the teaching of the true gospel and the key Christian beliefs and commitments existed prior to the New Testament scriptures. This is the teaching that Jesus passed on to his disciples as he prepared them to succeed him in ministry. When confronted with heretics who believed very differently about Jesus and disputed their interpretation of the scriptures, the early church fathers appealed to the tradition which Christ delivered to the apostles which the apostles delivered to the churches and which was guarded by the churches. Irenaeus writes even if no writing had been left by the apostles nevertheless from the tradition which the church had received from the apostles and which it had preserved uncorrupted until that time it could be learned what the true apostolic doctrine was. The teaching of the true gospel received from Jesus and the apostles and integral to the Christian faith was passed down originally in oral form. Again, what later became known as the church's rule of faith existed prior to its Bible and is not identical to the biblical canon. It helped to determine what books would be included in the Christian scriptures. In other words, as Robert Wall says, certain Christian writings were added to the Old Testament scriptures and received as God's word because their content cohered to the core beliefs of its Christological confession. He writes, the Christian Bible gives written and so fixed expression to the rule of faith. The hermeneutics used to decide which writings to preserve or not, then to canonize or not, even including the decision to accept Judaism's biblical canon as Christianity's OT, are at every stage of the canonical process explained within this confessional framework. That is, the Bible's original intent and aim of its interpretation is formative of a particular faith community whose public life and faith accords with its prior confession that Jesus is Creator's Messiah and creation's Lord. This means that scripture was never a stand-alone self-interpreting text. Again, when the early church was contending with heretics over the exposition or meaning of scripture, Chemnitz notes that Tertullian and Irenaeus appeal to the true tradition of the church. He says that there is no doubt that the primitive church received from the apostles not only the text of the scripture, but also its legitimate natural interpretation. In their writings taught by Jesus and with their minds opened by the risen Lord so that they could understand the scriptures, the apostles interpreted the Old Testament scriptures in the light of the rule of faith, their account of the gospel already present in the life of the community. And it is these beliefs that give their Old Testament interpretation the shape it has. In their interpretation of Old Testament texts, which they worked to construct and justify, their primary goal was to to discern Christ in the scriptures and to better comprehend Christ and his work and its implication for their lives. It was not primarily to solve textual or historical difficulties. In more traditional terms, in the typological and figural interpretations that are characteristic of their Christ-centered ways of reading, the events and people and prophetic words in the Old Testament find their meaning not only in the contingencies of their historical situations, but in the event of master significance, Christ's incarnation and redemption which is before history, in the sense that it occurred in eternity, but is also the content of history, in the sense that the events in the Old Testament reflect and anticipate it. To read the Old Testament this way is to always be referring its contents upward, so to speak, to the source of their meaning, to Christ, and not just forward to the next event in the historical sequence. And so, for example... Paul calls the Old Testament festivals, the new moon, the Sabbath, shadows of things to come of which the substance is Christ. And in their preaching, the apostles commonly quoted Old Testament texts, such as Psalm 2, and proclaimed that in Christ God had fulfilled what he said. As Christians, the writings of the apostles regulate the way we interpret the Old Testament and the way we answer the question, who is Jesus or what is Jesus to us? The gospel we proclaim and live follows theirs. So, for example, with them we confess that Yahweh is the creator and ruler of the world and the only true God. In his mercy, this one true God chose a people for himself over whom he exercised his rule. He gave them a name and he promised that they would be his people and he would be their God. He is the father and he made Israel his son. And he promised that through Israel his son, all nations of the earth would be blessed. Throughout Israel's history, from the age of the patriarchs to the time of the exodus and the wandering in the wilderness, to Israel's entrance into Canaan and into the time of the judges, in the monarchy, and even in the exile to Babylon and the return, Yahweh, the king, exercised his rule through acts of judgment and then grace, handing unfaithful Israel over to death, But because of his undying love, always bringing Israel back to life, Ezekiel 37. Always working to create a people with a heart faithful to him alone. Israel's experience of Yahweh's judgment and then grace, bondage and then deliverance, death and then resurrection, anticipated what Yahweh, through the prophets, said he would do for all creation. There would come a day, they said, when God would put all things right and all sin and even death itself would be judged and the promises God had made his people would come to pass completely. Christians proclaim that in Jesus and his life, death, and resurrection, that long-promised eschatological day came ahead of time. Yahweh kept his promise. Jesus was his faithful son. Nevertheless, at the cross, his father treated him as a sinner. He turned his face away from him like he had hidden his face from unfaithful Israel throughout her history. But just like ancient Israel, the father loved his son and could not give him up. He could not hide his face forever, and so he raised Jesus from the grave. And in that victory, sin, death, and all of God's enemies were judged, and the promises God had made to his people and to all people were fulfilled. In the resurrection, the father gave to this son all the blessings that he promised Israel. And that's why we say, And that's why Christians say that Jesus is Israel, condensed into one. And Christians believe that it is through Jesus that this story becomes our story. Through baptism, the Holy Spirit has incorporated us into Israel's, that is, Christ's death and resurrection, judgment and grace history. That becomes our experience, too. We are buried and raised with Christ. In Christ, we are sons of Abraham and heirs of the promise. In other words, through him, God's people inherit Israel's blessings with him. And so he is also our savior, the deliverer of Israel. He is the Moses, the Joshua, the Samson, the priest, the David, the prophet, and so on for us. And just like Israel of old, Christians are waiting for Jesus to return on that last day to make his victory known. And until that time, we endeavor to follow him as he calls us. An account of the true gospel like this answers the question for Christians. Who is Jesus? And provides the context for understanding Jesus' advent. This way of reading the scriptures and talking about our life with Jesus is often condemned as hopelessly anachronistic. But under the conviction that God is the creator of all things and the author of all historical events, nothing escapes his control. The assumption that neither he, the divine author, nor the inspired authors, are bound by the the constraints of chronology becomes obvious. The charge of anachronism is itself a cultural concept tied to the Western Enlightenment view of time as unidirectional and irreversible. The West, unlike other cultures, views time as a straight road stretching to the future along which we progress. The road has segments or compartments that must be kept separate. At the same time, this uniform and linear view of time is compatible with and enabled by a mechanistic worldview in which belief in the supremacy of God grows weak. But for Christians, God who is all in all operates without temporal constraints. Anachronism is no problem for God. In saying this, we do not collapse history as if God's prior dealings with Israel are of no consequence. This means that we should not allegorize Old Testament narrative in a way that God's dealing with Israel are rendered disposable. Nor should we treat the Old Testament simply as stories, providing moral examples or prescriptions for us to imitate, thereby making the Old Testament characters virtual stand-ins for the modern Christian, just another form of allegory. Nor should we collapse history by quickly substituting the voice of Jesus for the Old Testament voice, For example, it is improper to hear only Jesus speaking a psalm, not David, or to see only Jesus in a prophecy and not the historical shadow, which may be Israel or the prophet. Because the scriptures for Christians are not just a description of the beliefs and lives of someone else, but we identify with the beliefs of the authors and the experience of God's people. We also believe that in the Old Testament and New Testament scriptures, God still speaks to us across historical boundaries. And what he has to say there is still relevant for us, and we read and interpret it that way. The scriptures have a hold on us that other texts do not. As Paul writes, the scriptures are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And so we eagerly search them for their life-giving message, But again, we do not read as independent agents. By God's grace, through the power of the Holy Spirit, we are born into a family of interpreters who have given us a tradition of texts and teachers that have sought to discern and clarify the voice of God for us. Our creeds and confessions are based on the scriptures and are congruent with the apostolic beliefs within which they are correctly interpreted. These writings crystallize our core commitments and in many cases embody the interpretations of the biblical text that emerge from them and that also function as justifications for those beliefs. They guard us against false teachings, sharpen our focus, and help us to understand the central and unifying message of the scriptures. These other authorities vary in their weight or importance in relationship to scripture depending on who we are and how we identify ourselves. For example, As Lutherans, we usually will listen more carefully to Luther than Calvin or the Book of Concord rather than the decrees of the Council of Trent. In varying degrees, these other family members explain and defend our faith. They say, in effect, this is what we believe the scriptures teach about God and why. This is what we believe the scriptures teach about salvation. This is what we believe the scriptures teach about baptism. This is what we believe the scriptures teach about how Christians are to live and so on. Like any family, we learn from these witnesses to the faith how to be one of the family. Their words shape us and form us so that we bear the family resemblance. They give us an identity. They are also a way of saying to others, try on these beliefs. Make these, rather than some other system, the beliefs by which you think and live. And with them, look at scripture this way rather than that way and see what you see. Granted our constellation of beliefs, our minds become engines that work to produce scriptural interpretations faithful to the community of which we are a part. But they are also interpretations that justify and defend our beliefs. This circle is common. Descriptions produced by belief also produce belief. Guided by the Holy Spirit from within our constellation of beliefs of which our understanding of Jesus is central. Christians still work to produce faithful interpretation by which we can speak to our modern world. We work to solve problems that arise, and we work to defend the faith and lead others to it. We discuss and debate what certain verses can mean and cannot mean. This is my body, for example. We decide what a given author is referring to in specific passages and what individual words mean in a given text. Guided by our understanding of who Jesus is, from within our communities, we make genre decisions, deciding what is history and what is fiction, for example. We decide when language is literal and when it must be interpreted symbolically. We address new questions that arise, such as, what are the responsibilities of the Christian to the environment? Or, how ought Christians to live under a secular government? We evaluate the contents of the canon and give reasons as to why some books ought to be more central to the life of the church than others. And so, for example, from our understanding of Jesus and his work, we give reasons for insisting that revelation must be read in the light of Romans and not vice versa. And we explain why Proverbs ought to be understood as general truth and not prescriptive law. Within our community, we determine how to use or apply the meaning of texts we have interpreted. The Christian tradition is a very wide and deep one and we do our interpretive work within it. Because we share many core convictions, at many points there is substantial agreement as to what a text means. There is little debate. The meaning seems obvious. But often there is disagreement and lots of it. This is because all of us are extensions of many communities whose beliefs sometimes overlap but often do not. We don't see the text in the same way because our beliefs constrain us from some perspectives and enable us in others. Again, this does not mean that one interpretation is as good as another or that uncertainty rules the day. What we believe, we believe is true. And what we do not believe, we believe is not true. So in the case of interpretive disagreement, what we do not do is enter a neutral ring with our adversaries and gaze together in uninterested splendor at the only right conclusion. We do what we always do and what we can only do. We do what Robert Price and Eddie Boyd have done. We provide arguments and evidence for our beliefs. We present the facts that our beliefs have delivered to us and we reason from them in an attempt to get others who we see as the obvious unbelievers to see what we see. Come over to my side and all will become clear, we promise. And we pray for the Holy Spirit to enlighten us and those to whom we speak. If the practice of interpreting the Bible is as I have described it in this essay, then there is no neutral overarching methodology that you can apply to a text which will determine what course your interpretive reasoning will take. In the middle of a basketball game, players cannot resort to theory to determine what the correct pass or shot or play might be. The ability to do those things comes from practicing, from repetition, from being mentored by those who are proficient in the game, by having others watch and correct and suggest and provide rules of thumb, until the moves of the game become instinctive and seem natural, self-evident to the players. But in our interpretive practice as Christian interpreters, we ought to remember to act with a spirit of humility we too often forget. Martin Luther's lifetime of studying the Psalms led him to humbly confess that he could never possibly fully understand the scriptures. At one point, he says, I must openly admit that I do not know whether I have the accurate interpretation of the Psalms or not, though I do not doubt that the one I set forth is an orthodox one. The Spirit reserves much for himself, he writes, so that we may always remain his pupils. There is much that he reveals only to lure us on, much that he gives only to stir us up. And as Augustine has put it so clearly, if no human being has ever spoken in such a way that everyone understood him in all particulars, How much more is it true that the Holy Spirit alone has an understanding of all his own words? Our life is one of beginning and growth, not one of consummation. Thank you.